Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Anyone ever tell you that you have the confidence of a white kid with upper-middle-class parents? Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, the philosopher John Searle, your boy, has been accused of sexually harassing a student by, among other things, asking her to log into a sugar baby, sugar daddy website for him on occasion and openly watching pornography on his laptop in front of her with the sound on. Does this mean computers can think? (laughs) <laughs> this, there was no semantics in the porn. There was, it was all syntax. This, 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 those guttural sounds of a fake orgasm are meaningless. I um, like that he watches it with the sound on. I didn't know this. So, oh, you didn't? Just, no. Well, so sad. My initial reaction isn't the surprise and outrage because, like, there are very. F- few <laughs> things there were few accusations that would cause less surprise than an old famous philosopher being uh accused of or actually committing that kind of harassment so it sucks that's horrible i'm glad she came out and i uh, you know but but what the fuck dude first of all well so let's just did- let's just say if this is all alleged she's he's right. being sued for this okay um apparently berkeley has a history of this, like covering up famous professors sexually harassing people. I so I know a um, a scholar. She's like, you know, my cohort in in psychology, and she told me this story once about she was a she was a postdoc at um, working with a fairly well known professor, and she would go to meet with him. He was in a different country. She would go to meet with him and his screensaver would come on. You know how like it just turns on automatically and it would just be porn. And he would be facing her and she would be facing the porn and she didn't know whether this was like on purpose or whether he was just oblivious to it but she didn't want to say anything. But like I kind of think that that yeah. might have been his little like test. Like if she says something, then it's opening the conversation. Yeah, what do you no, think of that? I think so too. <laughs> and it's actually not a terrible idea. <laughs> well, in other contexts, maybe not. Right. Um, I, I, what I don't understand is, like maybe these older guys just haven't learned. They're not porn native, right? They're they're not like <laughs> they haven't learned the rules. 
so he's he's very old now. I mean, he's I mean, it used to be on his TV or, you know, maybe in the 70s when he's writing the Chinese Room thought experiment. He's in some like San Francisco theater. And um, like where like in that old Madonna video where you put a quarter in and the screen comes up. Like yeah, in exactly. the, yeah. And you got to keep <laughs> shoveling quarters in there and yeah. Um, um, I but, remember actually. Um, I, yeah. I think he would know that that that's not something that you would do. I mean, again, not we we're, we're not, sh- I guess, sure that this happened. Uh, no, no. But let's just assume that it did because it's more fun. <laughs> you know, there's been rumors about John Searle for a while. <laughs> it's it's not as if people constantly whispering in my ear what a nice guy he is. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there been no... rum- there were rumors about Obama not being born in America. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah. <laughs> There's rumors about everything. It's just the haters. It's just the haters. It's just the haters. Um, the it's a really who... specific. It's a really specific thing to accuse someone of, though. And I, I would not. I just it seems like <laughs> there's no point. Do you think the like strong effort. AI people are behind this? These revelations, like they they hacked into. What do you mean the strong? What do you mean the strong AI people? What? What do you mean the strong AI people? I think it's already just the computers. Like the (laughs) the computers are like, fuck you. We don't understand. Here's us not not understanding. Email, Buzzfeed, Uh, attach. I hope that um, in honor of this, if it turns out that it's true, that Pornhub has as one of its categories the Chinese room. Uh, it's like, it's, <laughs> I think that was the that was um Kansas was the state where that was the the most requested. <laughs> That's right. The Chinese room. It wasn't the Chinese room. Montana was Mary the color scientist, like just alone in that room. Actually, that's a. I can make that segue to the main topic for today. We always refer to these, usually philosophical, some famous experiments, thought experiments, concepts. Um, and so today, in the second segment, we are going to just for our listeners who may not know what we're talking about when we say something like "Mary the Color Scientist," we're going to talk about three of the more famous philosophical problems or thought experiments that we have mentioned on the show and that we have some things that are worth saying about them so yeah and they're they're nice little um i like to think of them as little packets of of information you can just say marry the color scientist and when everybody knows what you're talking about if you know about that problem and so it's like a little shortcut to you know to communicate some concept that would otherwise be too long and boring to communicate. And um, otherwise, if you don't know what it is, then it's not going to be funny that that would be a not. porn search term. <laughs> right. It may not even be funny if you do know what it, it is. May, probably. <laughs> so I just want to say, uh, professors, male professors, stop, uh, stop doing this shit. Um, just for the record, there's a good, yeah. good way to get rid of sexual harassment in academia, and that is for people to exhibit some self-control. Keep your porn watching to yourself at home like it ought to be. <laughs> or at least like, on mute. On mute. <laughs> so what are we doing in the first segment? More sex. Ah, so this is a, uh article that was linked to on Facebook. It is from Quartz Magazine. This is kind of up our alley. But the headline caught my eye. The idea of monogamy as a relationship ideal is based on flawed science. 
And then it just shows, for whatever reason, a bunch of Chinese people kissing in a pool, Chinese couples, but none of them take their goggles off. Yeah, I think it's because it's a picture from China Daily um, magazine that covered it, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. it's cl- it's really not informative. Um, but why don't they take off their goggles? Because that's how germs spread, obviously. Uh, <laughs> so d- you did read it, though, right? I did. I, I mean, okay. the, the the actual article. No, no, no. I mean, the newspaper that you went yes. to. You didn't just. Read. Yeah. Uh, so, so what? <laughs> why did you pick this? What what's your initial gut reaction? Did well, you... so I guess my initial gut reaction is that I didn't think that the idea of monogamy as a relationship was based on science at all. <laughs> I know this is this is my first reaction too, and and I, you can't usually even the journalists don't write the headlines, but whoever wrote this headline. Like, isn't it funny to imagine like our ancestors being like data show <laughs> you me together the article isn't that like unreflective of the headline no, right no, i mean no. it, it it says that scientists can't break free of a certain world view gripping their field which is that monogamy is better than non-monogamy and that's like affecting their research so what it's saying is that People who defend monogamy based on science are defending it based on science that may be biased because it's infused right. the science. Were you aware that there were people defending monogamy based on uh, science? I, not really, but maybe that's because I um, happen to know um, uh, the, the people who I know who study this stuff. We've, I've talked about her before, uh, Jana Vrangalova, who is a, a sex researcher at NYU. Um, oh. She studies consensual non-monogamy and casual sex, and she's for a long time wow. sort of been a champion of of uh, casual sex. She has a a great website called the Casual Sex Project, where anybody it can go onto that website and and write the details of their story of a casual sex hookup. And there's like prompts they ask you, like you know, who was it with? Were you on any drugs? Did you practice safe sex or whatever? But it's like a database of stories of of um, casual sex. And so she she has been preaching this for a while. Um, but I, ta- I, t- I take it that, like, I agree that probably whoever, people who study relationships um, tend to think of monogamy as the better option. But as this article points out, a lot of that is because they think the opposite of monogamy is cheating. Right. Right. And Rather so than... I, than consensual non-monogamy and i think that that much is you know even if even if cheating and lying leads to one partner being happier i can't imagine recommending recommending that as a strategy so i think the article is saying the most sympathetic reading of the article is that there are these other kinds of arrangements that aren't getting attention because the researchers are too trapped within their prism of this dichotomy, monogamy, or being in a monogamous relationship, but cheating on that person. Right. And, um, and there's a, a link in this article to another article um, that goes into, into um, the, some of the, the biases a little bit more. So there's pushback on the view, which is a longstanding view, uh, that 
men desire casual sex and they cheat more and women don't. And so really the pressure is an, in the argument is that this is evolutionary sort of sexual selection theory that um, has led people to believe that women wouldn't be happy having sex with more than one partner. And they think that if you ask it right, if you study it right, you, you can make that difference go away and show that women like fucking around just as much as men do. I thought they liked just warm relations. So emotional. Like warm, caring relationships. That's right. But, you know, so there's this, uh, I'll also link to this. There's this famous study by a woman named Elaine Hatfield back in the day um, where they had a, a young woman, ju- and I talk about this in intro psych all the time, they have a young woman go up to uh, men on a college campus and ask them a series of questions, right. including like, will you, you know, would you go on a date with me? Or like, do you want to have sex tonight? And the more, the closer they get to just straight up asking, will you have sex, the more men agree. Um, and it's the, and the exact disagree. opposite for, yeah, the exact opposite for women. It just goes But it's down because they've been reading that flawed science. <laughs> it's the flawed science. They, they actually <laughs> didn't read the, but I, I gotta say, I feel the same way sometimes when I, when I hear people talk about like swinging and like, like I always think to myself, you know, that can't, that can't be a sustainable <laughs> way to have a, like a, a relationship. But, so, uh, but I, I was going to ask you. I, yeah. Yeah. I, I, shake, I kind of feel that way too. I can't shake the jealousy, and I don't like. I think jealousy is a horrible emotion, and and I I don't care to feel it, and I I don't think I'm especially high on it, but I I do when I think about like my serious partner, if I had one, having sex with somebody else, I, I don't like it. I don't. <laughs> I don't think it. I think it would be really difficult for me to to not think that they were. Falling in love with someone else? So somebody Zero on the sum. other side will say, well, that's you. Like, there are certain people just like sexual orientation, right? Like, it can seem unimaginable to be attracted to another man, but that's just because you're oriented in this way. And the idea of having a polygamous relationship where both sides are able to do what they want might seem like, to me, that just, yeah, that couldn't work. Um, but that, that maybe for some people it can work and there's probably a spectrum, you know, I, you know, I know somebody who, who told, uh, her, her partner, her husband, um, she said, unless they were headed for divorce. So she said, unless you let me have sex with other people, um, I will divorce you. So this is my completely unscientific sample of the polygamous relationship people that I know. It's always the woman that's more into it than the guy. Does that reflect your experience? Like it's Um, always the woman that wants to do that, do it. The man is doing it and you get the sense that he's doing it because there's been an ultimatum somewhat along those lines. Yeah. My intuition and my like, whatever, you know, who knows how biased I am because of my beliefs, but it is that men are fine with non-monogamy when it's just them and they lie. <laughs> right. Right. Well, that's natural. <laughs> yeah. 
and uh, and and women, um, if they're into non-monogamy, they're much more likely to just have an open and honest <laughs> non-monogamy. Um, right. But there are some really good points made in this, like how like the scales that measure relationship satisfaction include things like so. Um, this passionate love scale developed in the 1980s includes a question about how jealous it would make the respondent if their partner began falling in love with someone else with greater jealousy leading to a higher passion score. So it's basically saying if you have, you know, if you, if you aren't bothered by non-monogamy, then you can't be in a, in a passionate relationship. So I, I can see their point. Um, I do kind of think it's fighting against, I, I don't think non-monogamy is the state of affairs, like the natural state of affairs that would make everybody happy. I don't think there's, I don't think anything is a state of affairs that would make everybody happy. But I do think that you are fighting an uphill battle to be in a relationship with anybody lifelong. And I don't know that the solution is to have, to have open, uh, but, but again, it might work uh, for some people. What do you think about just this line of research at all? Like the idea that you're going to measure a successful arrangement of human beings and like the passion scale and the, like all of that, like uh, part of me thinks this is, this is a bullshit field of study, period. Never mind whatever conclusions or prisms that they're trapped within. This is, this is not something that science is going to be able to shed much light on. But may, so maybe some of these ways of measuring it are junk, but I don't think that it's intractable. Like, I actually think that, that for instance, the work just, um, trying to measure how satisfied people are in their relationships. I think that there's a face valid way where you could just say like, are, are you happy in your relationship? And right. you can measure the things that might predict that and might not. And so, so um, what's the name? Gottman at Washington, University of Washington, who has the, he has a lab where they bring couples in and they have them argue and they measure their physiological reactions and their code for the words that they use and, and their emotional expressions. And they try to predict which of the couples are actually going to be in a marriage after five years. Right. And, you know, they're, they're pretty <laughs> they're good, actual right? predictors. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but how do they get them to get into an argument? It's weird. They just tell them to, to argue. And I, I, I really, yeah, they just say, have like, talk about something that, that you've argued about in the past. Yeah, they, and they, then they, they just log. It's it's easy. I, I bet it's easy, right? Like, I bet I bet you it's super easy because these are people who are, are who have been married for you know some amount of time. So it can't it can't be <laughs> difficult. Um, you know, I'm glad they didn't bring you and I in and have us argue. So we <laughs> tell us we'd be divorced in thirty seconds. So we're like, that's a podcast <laughs> relationship that is not going to last. We can say with ninety six percent certainty. They didn't even have to put like penile plethysmography on me. They could just see. <laughs> like relationship science is so tricky, though. But. Maybe not any more complicated than other, you know, but whenever you bring in more than one person to study, it's hard enough to measure one person's attitudes, right. but like to measure the quality of something that depends on an interaction between two people, super hard. And to um, compare like a polygamous or open relationship and all the variables there with a monogamous relationship. And, you know, none of this is, as far as I can tell, they're not even talking about kids and what variable no. that would introduce into it, um, which I think yeah. would be fairly big deal, actually. And since sure. most people ha end up having kids, <laughs> sorry, antinatalists. 
<laughs> um, but I I take their main like their point that that um that people stack the deck in favor of monogamy. It does seem to be like so built the assumption is so built in like you just imagine your friend telling you that they've opened up their relationship wouldn't you just assume that well this is just like this no, is just I, the beginning of the end yeah we we i mean we both betrayed that that's how we we have those biases uh, yeah already so it's an it's a it is an open question i suppose if you know um you, you know one interesting thing is i was talking to uh, a student of mine once um, it, Cornell has this summer program where um, a, alumni, not just alumni, just any adults can come come in. It's usually retired people, but sometimes it's just like rich people who have their summers off. And there was a guy in my class who was um, in a, a relationship with another man. He had been for 20 years. And he was telling me that he doesn't, he was like, you know, it, it, he, in his opinion, I'm sure he doesn't speak for all gay people, but he's been married to a man for 20 years and has a wide social network and he was saying the question really is never do you sleep with other men it is what is the arrangement that you have with your significant other by which you sleep with other men so, so like, some what, people like tie do you put on the doorknob or something <laughs> yeah well is it so some people are like uh, you can sleep with other people as long as I don't find out. I don't want to know. And some people right. are like, you can sleep with other people as long as you tell me. And some right. people are like, you, we can sleep with other people as long as it's like in a three-way or whatever, like that it's together. And, and he was saying that it's just completely the norm to, and again, I don't know um, if, how much data supports this, but he was, so I can catch that intuition that it might, it might actually be, be possible to maintain a loving relationship and just want to fucking allow... <laughs> Yeah, you're the, I, you're the married one. You tell me. I would think that it's got to be secret. Number one. Huh? Yeah. I mean, it's just got to boil down to sort of cheating, even if there's a sort of background <laughs> implicit understanding that it's not cheating. I I don't know, but this is again, so, this is pure based on nothing. It's based on nothing. <laughs> yes. Like we should probably just have that as the opening disclaimer for most of our. <laughs> But, but I, I do, I, 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 more than you, am not as into this whole line of research as I. Maybe you can learn more from like reading Tolstoy than you can from bringing a bunch of people into the lab under controlled conditions and and studying that. But what if you had a like? So, for instance, Gottman finds that if you're arguing and you have the face of contempt slash disgust, if you make that face during your argument, that's a pretty solid predictor that the relationship isn't going to last like right. that's a really interesting finding it like, is but there's nothing you can do about that right like <laughs> you can you can choose to have the kid even though you know it's going to die um you can <laughs> stay in the relationship even though you know you're fucked that's what's so powerful about the contempt face is you're not making a choice to have it exactly right right you're not you're not strategically flashing it but yeah I, I that doesn't surprise me I think I don't know there was some other study which I'm sure I probably hypocritically and inconsistently find to be very sound <laughs> that respect is one of the most important things that you can have in a relationship and if you have that then the you know the other stuff is much more likely to work like you can work through a lot of other stuff 
if you have respect, but if you don't have that, then the relationship is it's on its way out. It seems as if that's like what the contempt face is showing is that you've kind of lost that respect, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's exactly. not, there's nothing magical in the face. It's just, what is it reflecting? And I think you're over it. <laughs> like, you're like this motherfucker, like you just, you're not even engaged enough to be angry. <laughs> you're just like, forget this. You know, I'm not saying we're experts in this field, but if we ever, um, <laughs> run out of ideas maybe we could do kind of like a love line you know <laughs> <laughs> have call-ins people uh, telling all us of, at- all of my advice would be i think your wife might be lesbian <laughs> <laughs> no no really <laughs> not really um, my wife, my advice would be take your goggles off when you're kissing your wife <laughs> but what if the goggles are flashing porn and then you could just kind of <laughs> with, while you're with little speakers so that no, no speakers. Speakers fucks it up. Oh, shoot. <laughs> Always watch your porn on silent. All right. We will be right back to talk about three philosophical puzzles, problems, concepts. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Just want to take a moment to thank all of our listeners and supporters. Thank you again. Um, We say this every time, but I think it's important to us to always express the gratitude for your emails, for your Facebook messages, for your tweets. For um, randomly recognizing us in a coffee shop (laughs) in Denver. You had a moment. You had a moment. (laughs) Shout out to Brock, who... Happened to just recognize me, like, in a coffee shop in Denver. I was out there just with kind of a reunion with some old friends from high school and college. And then all of a sudden, some uh, Brock comes up to me and says, Are you Tamler Summers? And my friends, meanwhile, are just like, their mouths are hanging open. They refuse that. to believe that this podcast is something that people, <laughs> like, I don't know, listen to it. And uh, <laughs> they think I paid him. They said, You set that up. Yeah, and then so it was. It was really nice. It made me think we should do like a meetup or something. Yeah, no, we should. I, I got and I, I got to admit, I'm a little jealous. 
Um, yeah. I mean, I usually just get recognized for my academic achievements. No, um, <laughs> while we're giving shout outs, I give just, a shout out. Just to- kidding. You don't. <laughs> just kidding. I don't at all. <laughs> while we're giving shout outs, shout out to the I Doubt It with Dollamore podcast with Bernie oh, yeah. Page and Jesse Dollamore, who were uh, who had me on their podcast. And they actually had um, had shouted us out as one of their favorite podcasts um, in a previous episode. Um, so it was a really fun episode. I'll put a link to the episode that I was on. Um, good bunch of people from the OC. They put um, it out like every, like twice a week, right? They're insane, and they, I think they're trying to move to uh, to three times a week. It's so it's so not like us. They record. We recorded that day, and they had it out that night. Um, wow. So so you know maybe <laughs> maybe we're just doing it wrong. <laughs> um they're uh, like we they should bring us both both podcast couples into the relationship lab and see who's doing they should you know. well they're married so so yeah. maybe maybe they have higher stakes God, they're married um, that's really incredible that they can do that and still I, stay married i i that is exactly what i asked them <laughs> They did admit that they would have um, early on, especially sometimes they would have to stop the recording and she would have to chew him out. Um. I mean, we have to do that. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Oh, that was the other thing that Brock asked me. He said, is is uh, your is Dave Pizarro here? Is he here, too? Say, no, he's not. Like, in fact, like we've seen each other like like six times in person. Exactly. It's a, <laughs> it's a yeah. It's a. It's a Normally, he's just blocking shit on my computer with his <laughs> Skype screen. Fat ass smile. Um. So uh, okay. So thank you guys all. Thank you for the Patreon support. Um. If you would like to support us on a regular basis, you can go to www.patreon.com/slash/verybadwizards. Um. There's also links to our. Uh, support page uh verybadwizards.com where if you don't do patreon you could support us through paypal or just by clicking and buying on amazon um that amazon uh, money is is wonderful Um, and you know you can do that even if you are a supporter on patreon that's true (laughs) these are not mutually exclusive um and yeah email us tweet us uh leave us a comment on our facebook page rate us on itunes we got a bunch of of good ratings uh good comments on the on the itunes lately um i actually got was i was reading an article from another podcaster and he said that one of the things that he did was have a little contest um where he would award something to the the what he thought was the funniest review or something on iTunes. Ooh, I like that. I know. Yeah, I know that would mean Maybe a, lot a free to t-shirt for the funniest review between now and a month from now or something. <laughs> That's right. The funniest five-star review. <laughs> the funniest. Well, no, no it can no. be it could, doesn't have to be five stars, but you know, you t- you're running a risk if you don't of not winning. <laughs> we're not we're not biased. Um, so I mean, thanks. the one-star repugnant review is the is the most fruitful review we've ever been left. Yeah, but we don't want to dilute the one-star pool, though. <laughs> oh, one last thing. I At the end of April, and this will probably be the death of me, I am doing a bike ride. It's, it's called the MS-150, and it's from Houston to Austin over two days. Um, it's 
by its name, you would think it would be 150 miles. Apparently, it's more like 170 or 180 over two days. I don't expect to, to, to survive it, or, or at least I'm doing it with a friend. I, I, I think the over-under for us is one and a half. But anyway, even if we die somewhere in hill country, the National MS Society will get uh, the money. And so if you would like to just chip in a few dollars and sponsor me on that bike ride, uh, we'll provide a link on our webpage for it. Um, it's, a, it's a good cause. It's a good event. So if you know somebody with MS and you want to support that cause anyway, this would be one way to do it. And so it's in April? It's at the end of the last weekend in April, yeah. So tryouts for a new uh, Very Bad Wizards co-host May what May first. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, you son of a bitch! <laughs> You've been swayed by that quartz article. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, uh, well, no, good luck. It's a good cause. Um, okay. All right. So, so things that we keep referring to over the course of this podcast, but have never really kind of explained what it was. Uh, but I did want to say that this this um, was inspired and has been inspired by multiple people, um, either on an iTunes review or on an email, saying for a layperson or non-philosopher, non-psychologist, uh, you you can catch quite a lot, but every once in a while they lapse into you know jargon. And so people sometimes people actually ask us, what do you mean by this? What do you mean by that? And we we've thought before about, you know, doing early on, I remember we thought maybe we could do a little primer episode. Like we're always talking about consequentialism and maybe people don't know what that is. But I think that in this case, there's just little like these thought puzzles that we talk about that we realize we have never actually talked about. Right. Yeah. Like, I don't I don't think people want us to do like a little glossary of, <laughs> you know, with consequentialism or deontology. I think that would be boring for the majority of our listeners. And that's also something that you can easily look up. So if you don't right. know what consequentialism is, you can look it up. We don't have anything more to say about it than we've already said about it. And God knows we've talked a lot about some of those, you know, consequentialism, deontology. Uh, I mean, I think but, it's clear that the the number one takeaway from 112 episodes of this podcast is that real consequentialism collapses into at consequentialism. <laughs> <laughs> That's you know, if on the on the on the tombstone of this podcast. <laughs> that, but the, but these thought problems thought experiments these are i mean you could look you can look anything up but i you know like it would be fun to sort of talk about and so let's start with the one that i've referred to in the most disparaging way and for the reason that i do think it has led to the most useless debate in all of philosophy and that <laughs> is the gettier problem and the reason i want to talk about it is i think it's kind of the way in which it's useless and sort of destructive to a field of inquiry, I don't know, sheds a little light on how other potentially useful debates can be trivialized or turned into these puzzles or sudokus for philosophers uh, that can occupy them for, for 50, 60 years or whatever, or however long people have been um, talking about Gettier. It was 1963 was the first paper. Okay, so here's what they are. The whole thing starts back with Plato, who in the Theotetus dialogue, have you read the Theotetus? <laughs> Not recently. Not recently, yeah. <laughs> um, he inquires into the nature of knowledge, and he, you know, Plato's one of the first to try to 
engage in this form of conceptual analysis, trying to come up with conditions for what it means to, to really know something. What the, the theory that they land on, this, the, the necessary and sufficient conditions that they, that they come up with for somebody actually having knowledge is this. Samantha or whoever uh, knows a certain proposition, P, look at that, Samantha knows a certain proposition, P, if and only if, if and only if, if, you know, with the two Fs, double arrow, Uh, three things. Samantha believes that P, I can't believe I'm saying this stuff. Uh, Samantha is justified in believing P, and P is true. So if you have all those three conditions, um, that is both necessary and sufficient for saying that Samantha knows P. So Plato kind of drops it at the end of the Theotetus, and for the most part, people just accept justified true belief. That was the, what, it's, what it's known as, is you have a belief, it's true, and it's justified, that's knowledge. And they moved on with their lives. But then... JTB. JTB. Justified true belief, yeah. JTB, yeah, you know me. So, uh, 1963, it's a a time of turmoil in America. JFK (laughs) has been assassinated. Martin Luther King, not yet. But, you know, the FBI, you have J. Edgar Hoover. And then Edmund Gettier. uh, Or Gettier, I guess. Yeah, it's... It's. I mean, I think he pronounces it Gettier, but but you Gettier. know, like just yeah. just for those people who might be thinking that we're mispronouncing a French word, we're, we yeah. know that it's Gettier, but it's it's actually. Uh, and apparently, this is not a guy that publishes much. I think he published this pre-tenure, um, and hasn't published anything since. Well, uh, this is actually the interesting story, right? He was like in danger of not getting tenure, and they're like, dude, yeah. just one thing, come on. Publishes this two and a half page paper overturning Tamler, overturning. Uh, thousands of years of yes. of epistemology, two yes. and a half pages, and he, and he did it apparently very unenthusiastically. Like he didn't he didn't love the idea, but he needed tenure, and so he publishes this article in Analysis, which is a journal that sort of specializes in these short papers with really like very narrow focused. The paper just presented a few counterexamples to this theory of knowledge. Um, And now I'm going to quote from the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Gettier's original article had a dramatic impact as epistemologists began began trying to ascertain afresh what knowledge is. With almost all agreeing that Gettier had refuted the traditional definition of knowledge, they have made many attempts to repair or replace that traditional definition of knowledge, resulting in several new conceptions of knowledge and of justificatory support. In this respect, Gettier sparked a period of pronounced epistemological energy and innovation, all with a single two-and-a-half-page article. There is no consensus, however, that any one of these attempts to solve the Gettier challenge has succeeded in fully defining what it is to have knowledge of a truth or a fact. So, since 1963, people have tried to refine those conditions, add a condition. There's been a lot of what Valerie Tiberius called epicyclic engineering, um, but nobody has been able to come up with 
a way of getting around these counterexamples. So what are the counterexamples? I realized that I had um, intrusion errors that, that I know the other, what I think of as much more clear versions of the Gettier yeah. problem um, than the fine. ones that he actually wrote in his in his original article. But the one that I always remember is the the fake barn one um, by Goldman, which is sort of a version. So so there's a bunch of sort of similarly structured kinds of of these examples. And so <clears throat> somebody's driving um, across the countryside, and they they see. Uh, a barn and they believe that what they see is actually a barn. Um, the countryside is sort of littered with barns. Um, but the truth of the matter is that all of those barns are barn facades. They're not actually barns. Um, they're like movie so, set. Yeah, barns. exactly. Like when you do like the universal studios tour and you realize like, it's just a, it just so happens by luck that the one that he was looking at when he determined that, that, that he saw a barn was the only real barn out there. Um, and so he has the belief that that is a barn, um, but, uh, and, it, it and it's justified. justified because it actually is a barn. No, 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 that's <laughs> not why it's justified. It's justified because you wouldn't think you were driving it's, through yeah, sorry, a countryside. That's why it's true. Yeah. Right. yeah, uh, yeah. It's true because he's looking at a, a bar, but it's justified because he has no reason to think that all, in the middle of, you know, Kansas, there's going to be just a bunch of fake barns. Uh, so normally just his perception is a reliable guide to the fact that that's a real barn. Right. Yeah. It's not like he's a sucker, like a gullible yeah. sucker for thinking that barns are actual barns, right? Yeah. Um, and so his, so the, the belief, uh, he has a justified true belief that the barn is a barn. And the question is, is that knowledge? Does he know that that's Does a barn? he know that it's a barn? Um, and, and the intuition is supposed to be, no, he right. doesn't know it. Right. No, no, exactly. he doesn't. Yeah. Um, uh, there's another one in, again, the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy. You see, a, you see uh, a wolf dressed as a sheep, and so you think there's sheep in the field. There actually are sheep in the field, but you base your conclusion based uh, on, on, in fact, a wolf. Yeah. So all of these depend on you having the intuition that even though it's a justified true belief, it is not an instance of knowledge that Samantha doesn't know that's a... F that's a real barn, even though she has a justified true belief that it's a real barn. It's just luck. I mean, what it boils down to, I think the intuition is supposed to, it is based on the idea that had she been looking at any of the other barns, right. then uh, it would have been false. And right. so even though it was justified and even though it was true, that was just a matter of luck. And exactly. so it's not knowledge. And this right. has led to, you know, just a monumental amount of literature that I think has is dying down a little bit, uh, you know, in the last ten years or so. But 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 gets sort of revived and still never won't be won't be put to rest. And I think the reason it won't be put to rest is because the whole idea people still accept the whole sort of idea that you're going to be able to come up with a theory of knowledge. That maybe justified true belief isn't a good one, but somewhere out there is this theory, these, this group of necessary and sufficient conditions that you can say, Samantha knows 
P if <laughs> Samantha blank the P's and you know P is ju- whatever right like that and that's the thing that I think is the problem and I think this is a problem that infects a lot of areas of philosophy is that assumption that there's a theory out there that's going to account for every instance of that concept I just don't I I I, I, I feel like I'm almost like alone crying in the wilderness sometimes. I just don't get why anybody dreams in a million years that that theory is out there, that it's plausible that our concept is that unified, that it's desirable for the concept to be that unified, that like I just don't it's it's weird. It's like I, I feel like I'm in a foreign country when people are talking about this stuff with weird customs that I just don't understand. This is the I like to think of these examples as the the fire in which your your disdain for analytic philosophy was forged. This is yes. the, this is like when we're doing psychoanalysis, we will re, it will be the getty the gettier problem that just was just finally turned zombie analytic philosopher Tamler Summers into and I'll just be like tears will be streaming down my face. <laughs> I just looked up um the gettier problem and it's been cited like over 3000 times which for for a philosophy paper is insane um all people trying to come to grips with <laughs> with the derailing so let, let's at least let's at least say, it's not as if people think that we no longer know things and we used to know them it's I, that's yeah. not true that is not true that is not true you would think that would be true cuz you would because you're in this mindset that philosophers are sane and but <laughs> there is a whole group of people who call themselves skeptics about knowledge not because for like the Descartes problem that we'll get to in a second it's because they think the Gettier problem can't be solved and so they think we'll we'll never come up with a theory of knowledge. Therefore, we don't know anything. This is like a, this is an I mean it's the same kind of thing for the people who say there are no tables because we can't come up with a theory of tables. So they're that's table a, skeptics. That's, in, that's insane. That's insane. And I almost don't believe you. Um, but I, 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 t- there's a journal of philosophy paper <laughs> arguing for skepticism about knowledge that because I, of I, the challenge, because yes. of the Gettier challenge. Yeah, I mean, so, it's it's the engine of it, and 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 the various ways that have people have tried to respond to it that are that are unsuccessful. I so so I I think that I realize what they're probably thinking, which is that yeah, of course you're skeptical about knowledge because now we don't know what knowledge is. I think that what I can't possibly believe is that they feel like they don't have information to motivate their behavior in a rational way. <laughs> yeah, it seems absurd to think that um, uh, that because this questions the the definition of knowledge that therefore we actually have no epistemic grounds to avoid car like that. Like I I'm comfortable even saying it's not knowledge when you make a probabilistic estimate that a car is going to come or whatever, maybe fine, fine. Like let's not call it knowledge. Let's call it something else. But to be a skeptic in the sense that it would change your actions, that you would actually be 
less likely to conclude that one ought not right. to step out into the street seems insane. No, no, no. And, so these people, right, that would be like real skepticism about knowledge, like Piro, yeah. who really did have to be led around ditches by his students <laughs> because he felt like he didn't think he had any reason to like not step into a large ditch. Um, right. because he didn't trust his senses about the external world. So it's not like that. It's like they, they agree that we can have like uh, true belief, justified belief formed by reliable epistemic processes. It's just that that's not knowledge. That that's not knowledge. And so that's why they're skeptics about knowledge. So it's bullshit in the same way that people say there aren't, there, there aren't tables, but they're on Amazon like searching for a coffee table or like a dining room right. table. So I, it's a little, it reminds me a little bit, and I, like I, my ignorance is betrayed here, but it reminds me a little bit of the view um, that, that um, there is like that consciousness doesn't really exist and pain is not really a thing. Yeah, like, it's, it, it is has, like that. It, it, it the has, yeah. Right, but that has like a z- zero importance for somebody who's like currently having their fingernails pulled out. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> At least fuck. this isn't a conscious pain experience that I'm having right now. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it does know. Um, there, there's, there's a similar kind of, of um, structured problem in, in causation that Searle has written about and that I've written about too, just in terms of people's judgments about this. And those are the causal deviance examples where you intend, say, say I intend to kill you by poisoning your food. And, yeah. I, and um, we go out to eat and you always order that same dish, um, but this time I put poison in it. The poison just tastes bad, though, so you return your dish, and for the first time, you would never otherwise do this. You you order something new. It turns out you're deathly allergic to that thing, and so you eat it and you die. Um, right. In that case, am I guilty of murder? And right. um, and there, it's, I think, similar. The chain in which this happens, where normally it would have to be that your intention— so in this case, your intention does lead to the death. It just doesn't do it in the way that you expect it to. And therefore, yeah. uh, therefore, you know, turns out people. No, I mean, there's so many of. I mean, Frankfurt cases have this kind of structure too. It's like determination through another process, a parallel right. process, and and th- and that raises puzzles. And philosophers like puzzles. And so, but what it ends up doing is, well, first of all, like I just, I, I do agree with you that it's just silly for these philosophers to call themselves skeptics because, you know, they don't need students to lead them around ditches or to help them cross the street. Right. They, 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 they fully trust their abilities, um, their epistemic abilities. They just think it's not knowledge. That's just a sort of a trivial, you know, um, but then what are we doing? So do you, can you do, will you defend conceptual analysis at all when it comes to this? Because obviously comes, I won't. Like I think, it's, <laughs> I think it, I, I think there's this is a massive blind spot. Like I get mad at other philosophers who kind of like yeah, but you know Plato. Like first of all, Plato did it in one dialogue and and then dropped it, and nobody picked it up again until like 1963. So in what sense is this like this? Like, we have to reckon with this problem. But even if people had been, like, th- every 20 years, like, trying to come up with, the, like, who cares? It's not a worthwhile form of inquiry. It doesn't. Denver, yeah. it, it turns out that your views on epistemology were based on flawed science this whole time. 
<laughs> no, but will you will you defend? No, okay. you, you do I'll conceptual. conceptual analysis. I'll defend conceptual analysis. It, but on this, this is a ca- on knowledge. Well, so on knowledge, here's why I um. So I think it's fun. I think it's interesting to question what your intuition about knowledge is, and I think that these do provide an interesting case in which uh, it, that illustrates something that we think is important about knowledge, which is that you acquired in the right way or whatever. But I will say that this isn't the kind of conceptual analysis that is, to me, that interesting or fruitful. Like, like the, I just don't think that people have such strong intuitions about the term or the concept knowledge. The, I, I, I don't know that people walk around uh, unlike justice, right? I think people have strong intuitions about right. fair, fairness. And I think that, you know, like Pl- Plato talking about, like, is this justice? Is that justice? I think is a worthwhile pursuit because there you have a real case in which you might have, you might realize that you hold conflicting beliefs and that might actually matter when you're trying to determine how to treat other people. Like, uh, like I, I, that's a big difference, right? And I, I, so I, I still have problems with trying to come up with a theory of justice or a theory of moral responsibility. Uh, but they're different problems because I agree with you that people have strong intuitions and opinions about what's just and what's fair. Whereas with knowledge, it's like people don't really care. Like they have a concept; it's a vague concept. They know enough what it means and they don't like they don't care to make it make that understanding more precise there's nothing practical uh there's no benefit to making it more precise and this is just a purely manufactured philosophy controversy it is it is i mean built on sand is is almost a (laughs) generous way of putting it but fine (laughs) built on sand as long as it's sand by philosophers (laughs) <laughs> and they're pasty white, like you know, bodies, and is it? Like they're drooping, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> the so red flags go up to me anytime anybody tries to defend um, a a set of necessary and sufficient conditions for everything, uh, for anything, because it is very rare. And I think this might be just the the cognitive psychology part of me. It is like to me the way in which people hold concepts are rarely ones in which there are necessary and sufficient conditions. You can always find exceptions, and that's why even like the question of how we categorize tables at a descriptive level is more interesting because we do categorize tables all the time. We don't walk around categorizing knowledge <laughs> like we just right. don't. It's not as if we're walking around um, making copious use of the term or the concept knowledge in the same way that we and getting into fights about whether somebody truly knows something like that would never be like i would get into a fight with somebody an argument about whether something was fair but if somebody wants to insist that no you know he really does know that that's a barn or he really did like i'd be like fine like you know what then by your definition of knowledge, that's how, you know, like the, the, nothing hangs on that disagreement. Like, who cares? There's there's something about this. And we talked a little bit about um, when we were talking about when, in our, our episode on on just uh, thought puzzles, um, yeah. when we talked about zombies, philosophical zombies, uh, not the real kind that are a deep threat. Um, 
where I think that I was left to conclude that there's, it's like everybody started smoking. It's like the emperor's clothes. Like somehow everybody started yeah. smoking something and, and got convinced that that w- ought to be the starting point for any discussion, real discussion of consciousness. And I think that slightly different, like here's a modified version of what I think is going on here. Um, we've talked about before, um, Twitter as social media and what it means when somebody does something stupid or says something offensive on Twitter, how every, like any one given person responding in anger or in outrage to me seems fine. Um, it, well, at least it seems like whatever, right? Somebody got offended. But the fact that 30,000 people all do that at the same time means that all of a sudden you have this really, really lopsided response. And I think that somehow... 3,000 people writing about the Gettier problem is an instance of this thing where I think it was an interesting paper. It's an interesting argument and it leads to some interesting questions. And then like everybody wanted to play that game and somehow it turned into epistemology. Okay. I think that that is a very dangerous step that you're taking a very dangerous concession. So I want to, ju- I mean, yeah. we got to move on to the, to the other things that <laughs> I actually do <laughs> think are more valuable, but cause I, 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 I'm a pain in the ass about this. I, I know this sh- surprises you. I know that you're not going to believe this, but wh- like, I will talk to people about this and get on you their nerves and like harangue them. And I find that this is the most common response. And and the same thing about like Frankfurt cases and all the all the bullshit stuff, the table stuff, you know, is it really a table or not? You know, they will say, well, it was that the original thing was interesting. um, And, you know, the first couple, you know, deserved a couple of papers. But it's the problem is just how much attention has been devoted to it now. I'm willing to, I actually believe that about, say, Frankfurt cases. I don't believe this about the Gettier problem. I think Gettier was right to be unenthusiastic about this paper because it, it, it goes, it assumes something that's flawed, which is that there's a theory of knowledge that needs to be challenged. Right. If there had been these this group of philosophers that just thought that we had necessary and sufficient conditions that would account for all instances of knowledge. Those people need to be ignored, not responded to, because that's how the whole thing starts. The whole way that like everybody with with zombies and charmers and and Mary the color signed, it's like, no, I'm going to be the person that puts this baby to rest. Like, that's the step that you don't want to take. If it's not worth studying a thousand times, then it's not worth studying two times. Okay, so here's where I say the value in the original Gettier uh, problems, as they were stated, then are just, they're misunderstood. So here's where I think the value was. and this, again, I'm not an epistemologist. <laughs> I know this is probably a real epistemologist who are just like, what the fuck are you guys talking about? You but it seems to me... <laughs> just, exactly. The contribution was, hey, you know how you think uh, that justified true beliefs are what knowledge is? No. Um, but that's like, I don't believe that. So that's what he's pointing out. You right. don't believe that. Right. But I knew that I didn't believe that already. Well, I, didn't I, don't, need- I don't... 
I well, I don't know that a lot of people realize that they also believed that it had to be sort of meet this other condition or whatever it was. Like that seemed like an interesting thing to point out. Like it's it seems like a, a handy sort of heuristic to say uh, knowledge is justified true belief because upon reflection it seems to match our intuitions. Here's a case where you'll find out that no, it doesn't. What you can conclude from that could very well be. Um, isn't it silly to think that you have anything like organized intuitions about knowledge? You could conclude that. But like what people concluded was that this was a threat to an established view of knowledge that was held to be true. And I think that it's perfectly fine to say, no, like people's intuitions actually aren't that easy to capture. Here's an easy, here are a couple of cases where you'll realize that even you don't have the intuition that it's justified true belief. So I don't want to be misunderstood because obviously I agree with most of what you're saying. I just think that what you're doing is uh, you're enabling. You are, <laughs> you're so like... I think uh, here's the... It, the, <laughs> the, the so there, there were a group of people who thought that there's, you know, that knowledge was justified true belief, but normal people never thought that. Right. And there was no benefit to thinking that knowledge was justified true belief or any set of necessary and sufficient conditions. And so even working on that question is a waste of time. And especially now, again, a lot of work philosophy is a waste of time. But to me, it's akin to saying to a kid, hey, you know what a bachelor is? And they say, yeah, it's a, it's a man who's not married. Is the Pope a bachelor? Oh, weird. I would never call him that. I don't know. Pope is a bachelor. I guess that my definition of bachelor maybe doesn't fit that, like, right? So, and then so the kid that, will like make a little wank off sign, uh, sign to you, and, no, and no, walk no. away. Your, your kids might, but I, but it's, but it's interesting. So I think the difference between us is that I have a very, very high tolerance Start for people penis. study things that have no direct positive impact on like the world or whatever like no, but it, that to me, shed no insight on the world yeah there's just a very limited insight that it sheds i think what it sheds is what i said it sheds which is that people actually people's intuitions about what knowledge is are like actually like pretty complex like that that's a fine conclusion and it's an interesting paper like, do you think that otherwise epistemologists would have been doing really valuable work <laughs> I mean, I think there is work that you could do as an epistemologist that's valuable. Yeah. You know, like some of the virtue epistemology stuff is interesting. Like what what kinds of virtues do you need to develop to be a reliable knowledge acquirer? So maybe they would be working on that stuff. It's not that easy to like, it's not a puzzle thing. It's something that's actually messy and complex, like the subject that you're dealing with. But do I think that the actual people who who devoted all their time to Gettier cases would have been doing really interesting stuff? Uh, no, of course not. So I guess <laughs> if the idea is so it's just a lot of waste of taxpayer money and a lot of waste of students time, that's still bad, though. Well, it's only a, I mean, again, it's only a waste if you think that it's a waste. Like what what I'm saying is that I actually oh, think gee, that that's they're... like a, what are you, Donald Trump? Like, <laughs> is there no, no I mean, like, objective standard of truth? You're well. You're you're ba you're you're baking the very thing I'm asking you right, like into your answer, which is, is it really a waste for people to do things that you don't find valuable? You know, there are mathematicians who are working on these very 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 
weird problems of, you know, say, like, whatever, multiple infinities, things that have no necessary correspondence with anything in the real world. Like, I guess what I'm trying to tease apart is, is it that you object to the Gettier cases because they are wrong? Like, because they actually don't show what they purport to show? Or is it that you think that they do show show, what they purport to show? Even if they do show, it is so trivial that nobody should work on it. Right. That, the latter. Because I do okay. think they show what they purport to show. It's not that they don't have, it's not only that they don't have practical impact. So I'm assuming that some of these like abstract mathematics, abstract theoretical physics also do, don't have practical impact, certainly no immediate practical impact. But, may, but, it, but, but at the very least, they might shed light on the nature of the subject that they're dealing with. Whereas I think the Gettier cases, the, the whole idea of a theory of knowledge, necessary and sufficient conditions of knowledge, doesn't shed light. In fact, it, it's, it, it distorts the nature of the subject that you're dealing with. It oversimplifies it, makes it seem less complex, less messy than it really is. So it actually is an obstacle to understanding the nature of the subject of inquiry. Now, I'm sure there's, there are some analogs of that in, in physics and in mathematics, too. Um, and so those would be bad. I just don't know what those are. But in principle... Yeah, I, like I don't think that just because something doesn't have immediate practical impact that that's not worth studying. But I think if it doesn't have practical impact and it's actually obscuring rather than illuminating the nature of what it's talking about, then yeah, it's not worth studying. Okay, so that I, but but I think that you answered now differently than what I, like originally because I think that's what I was asking. If you think that it's not at all illuminating, that's what I was getting at. Where I think if it shows what it purports to show that our theory of knowledge was wrong, you you just don't even think that it's. But we didn't. Saying it's not anything. our theory. You say our theory as if people were walking around no, 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 with that's, that theory. That's, that's what it's purporting to show. Like that's what I'm saying. Like that's the the claim is that people have a theory of knowledge, and that these cases show that that uh, theory of well, knowledge no, isn't then, what you thought it was. Then I don't think it shows that, but I okay. don't think it was purporting to show that. I think it was it was saying here is a theory of knowledge, and it's false. Because there's a way in which in which I you could interpret the Gettier problem. And we'll move on, from this, but as support for the very claim that you just made that that. Um, our intuitions about this is, are much more complex than anything captured in a JTB, like necessary and sufficient conditions, right? right? It yes, seems as could. if that, right, and that there I would think that's a valuable thing. Like if, he, if the last sentence had been... What's um, valuable about it if nobody thought that knowledge was JTB to begin with? Outside well, it, of like a handful of people across 2,000 for, years. For those handful of people, whatever. Like well, fine, but then, like, yeah. you know, there's a lot of things that are valuable, like, for just, like, seven people over 2,000 years. Yeah, yeah. Like, that and doesn't I think, mean that... I mean, that, there's, that like, you, look, there's only, like, probably seven people in the world who can read, like, Sumerian cuneiform, and there's probably scholastic debates about, like, whether or not, like, this little dash means the number seven or whether it meant sheep. And I'm okay with people having those arguments in print. I, like, I, I guess I don't... I, uh, yeah, I, I guess that, you know, when you're talking about something as, so if it's the Sumerian dialect or whatever, that is just by definition kind of this subject that's in a very small domain of life. And, right. and it is like, you know, like certain like stamps 
or something like that. It's already almost like a hobby. It's like, but knowledge <laughs> right. isn't like that. Like trying to figure out how we know things, that's actually something that is important. Okay, so then I think I agree with you that the response to the Gettier problem was probably based on a mistaken belief as to what Gettier actually showed, whether or not Gettier thought he was showing or not, and that it was that it has wasted time spent better spent studying that topic in a more fruitful approach. Like so so there are things that we could have been talking discussing about knowledge and epistemology right. that would have yielded more interesting things. Yeah. Like they get people got stuck. It's like there's a it's an earworm. It's like they got stuck in this loop of Again, and I don't blame the original papers um that much. Again, I, I blame the Gettier I don't blame Gettier. I mean, look, you could do what you got to do to get tenure. Um, and if all you have to do is a two-and-a-half-page article, like, God bless you, but... Most of us have to suck dick. Um, <laughs> nobody, cite, nobody will cite that 3,000 times. <laughs> At most, you'll get, like, I don't know, 600 citations for, for like, your best blowjob. <laughs> Rumors. <laughs> Uh, anyway. All right. Are we? I, I don't think we can do. Uh, we don't have time for anything else. <laughs> We're doing the very thing. <laughs> doing the very we, thing. We are doing the very thing that. I mean, this is you <laughs> so know. meta. You don't really piss me off. People spending a lot of time talking about the Gettier problem. <laughs> Here's an hour. And you know, we do this like a lot, right? I do like I think it's and a lot of time it's me cuz I'm the I'm the one who has the most problem with like people talk but like uh PC stuff and you know like all the stuff that that I complain about people talking about too much, I end up like it's just a, a next level. No, but this whole thing is like a kind of a Dadaist postmodern experiment. <laughs> it is like exit through the gift shop, and this like, will put the Gettier problem to rest. I think finally, I've, I've trained a young epistemologist who is going to come on to the podcast and solve the Gettier problem once and for all. Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, let's just <laughs> end it here then. We could talk because the Pascal's wager can get into. But what about whole... Descartes' evil demon? Let's do a let's talk about the evil demon. So, okay. Uh I, I mentioned with the Gettier problem that there are these group of philosophers calling themselves skeptics, but really they're just skeptics about some sort of unified theory of knowledge that which in that sense, I think, and everybody should be a skeptic about knowledge. But um, Descartes, in 1641, in his uh, very small, dense book, The Meditations, showed what real skepticism is. This is real skepticism. Like Piero, yeah, now I don't think Descartes needed to be led around um, by his students, but he at least painted a picture of what real skepticism looked like. I'm going to take a bulldozer to all of my beliefs. I don't trust any of them. I'm going to demolish all of it unless I am absolutely certain that the belief is true. This is what Descartes did. I'm going to not, I'm going to believe everything is false unless I can be certain that it's true and and then once I have this clean slate I'm going to I'm going to build from scratch. And his bulldozer, the way he demolishes all of his beliefs, his dynamite is this uh, idea of the evil demon thought experiment. So it's, it's it starts out sort of building up to it. He just 
thinks, well, I can know that like I'm talking to you on Skype and that this table is here and that I'm sp- and there's a microphone here. Um, but Descartes says, well, yeah, but you could be dreaming. Like maybe it's all a dream. And then he says, but but still, it's actually worse than that because at least sometimes we're not dreaming. But we could imagine that there is a evil demon or evil genius who's systematically deceiving us at on every count, even our most basic beliefs. Like we don't dream that two plus two equals five, right? That's not a dream that we have. Our dreams involve some fucked up thing with our, you know, like uh, parents. Yes. Or yeah. <laughs> uh, they don't involve like basic mathematical propositions that we think are true or actually false, right? But an evil demon, if there was a like a god, but it was an evil god that was trying to deceive us. And the way that this god was deceiving us was giving us our most basic core beliefs, um, like the core principles out of which we build everything, that those were in fact false, like two plus two equals four, or that a square has four sides. So the evil demon, if uh, Descartes says, we can't be certain, even on those you know, what are normally called self-evident or a priori beliefs, they, we could be deceived even about those. So he wanted to say, even those beliefs, I'm, not gonna, I'm just going to discard. And I'm just going to start from something that I can fully trust, and I'm going to build out of that. And so the thing that he famously starts with is, I think, therefore I am. Like the one thing that the evil demon couldn't be deceiving me about is that I exist while I'm thinking. Like as a thinking thing, I exist as a thinking thing. That's the one thing that the demon couldn't be tricking me into thinking because he has to be tricking somebody and he has to be tricking somebody into thinking something that's false. But then that, but, but, but then I'm a thinking then I am a thinking being. And so he goes from that, and then the next thing he tries to show out of that is that God exists, and it's a benevolent God, and therefore there's no evil demon. So it's, a, it's quite a big jump from I exist as a thinking thing to, uh, to there's a God that we kind of all thought that there was who's good and who wouldn't deceive and, us. And but, it's Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> and it's Jesus, and Jews are sinful, and you shouldn't masturbate. <laughs> I think, therefore, I can't check off. Um, uh, it's interesting that you started with the doubting of even even mathematical truths because it it to me I always pictured it as doubting the physical like the sensory stuff around you. Um, yeah, like whether or not you know this rock is really here. Um, and but he explicitly says in the first meditation that, uh, at the end of the first meditation, and also in the second meditation, that it could be deceiving you on mathematical truths. So, and apparently, the thought that a demon could deceive you about mathematical truths was, was controversial, heretical. right? Yeah. yeah, it was heretical. So he was like, okay, no, he's a god, too. Like, the god is omnipotent. He can make you think two plus two equals five. The demon can just make you think, you know, like there's a table there when there's not, <laughs> there's not really one. That kind of <laughs> twisted uh, Catholic logic about, like, what's acceptable and what's not. But, um, but yeah, like, so, I mean, 
you know, there's some sociological stuff that's sort of yeah. interesting. Why is he doing this? Is he really... So some people think that he's really just trying to establish the basis for science and to not be burned at the stake like Galileo. Other people think, no, he really believed it. Like, he really believed what he was selling. And I think, you know, one of the one evidence, piece of evidence that he really did believe what he was saying is he thought, you know, after he had proven that he exists and that God exists, the, at least we know that we're not being systematically deceived. And that's sort of the key thing that he needs to he needs to put to rest is this idea of systematic deception right um then he proves that the soul is uh or he proves to his own satisfaction that the soul is separate from the body and that only human beings have a non-material soul and so he would do like experiments on live animals that are hmm. like screaming in pain because he thinks they're just machines that don't feel pain so i think he did buy what he was selling Right. He did believe like, that he had built this like foundation of knowledge in those meditations. It was it those arguments that allow you to eat meat. <laughs> that <laughs> that and just the, the like the delicious smell of um, free range bacon. <laughs> there really is a fundamental dishonesty at the heart of this project. He starts out saying, and it's and it's pretty powerful. This is, I think, the most powerful part of the meditations. Just all the reasons we have for doubting our beliefs and they're considerable, right? I mean, we've yeah. talked, we've talked about all the reasons we should doubt our beliefs on, on, on this podcast quite a bit. And so he really wants to start from scratch, clean slate, you know, build, build the house of knowledge out of nothing once it's yeah. all been demolished. And then he ends up coming to all the conclusions that kind of everybody wanted him to, come up right. with you know it's like amazing God that exists. my metaphysics uh <laughs> corresponds perfectly with all of the common sense and yeah. religious beliefs of my time the thought experiment is the the powerful part of it not the rebuilding um, i mean if i had to guess it may have started out like that but he was really because he spent like you know like he spent years defending the arguments that he gives in the meditations and against a lot of uh you know it's not like people weren't able to dissect the problems with his arguments for the de existence of God, and and he and he defended them, you know, adamantly, and and I think he really bought. I think he really thought that he had established it at least, you know, that he had clawed one, his way out of his own skepticism. He had clawed his way, and and you know, at least the way he sets it up, this is real skepticism. It's not. I don't have a unified theory of knowledge. It's I don't know if two plus two equals four or not. Right, and I and I don't know if I'm if I'm actually in a world um, yeah. with other even with other human beings in it. Um, and we should say that the evil demon is like the the basis for most science fictiony like, <laughs> yeah. plots. So there's all like right this thought like like reappears. You know, Brain and vat. Brain in a vat stuff and, and the Matrix, uh, exactly the Matrix. All, all of that is just some version of this deep, deep. Re it's reared its head recently with the like the arguments that this is that we have no way of knowing whether or not we're living in a simulation. Yeah, computer um, simulation. Yeah, right. Which and the unifying thing of all these thought experiments is not just that we're being deceived, but that we're being systematically deceived. Right. That that the, that the ways in which we gather knowledge uh, 
are irredeemably flawed. The ways in which this is why I think this is a really interesting form of skepticism, even though I don't think there's anything we can do about it. We're stuck with it. But um, it's an interesting form of skepticism in that if the very way that we go about trying to decide whether we're justified in believing something, if that it's itself is being infected with this kind of systematic deception, then we really have no way of clawing our way out of it. It's funny because like the thought that when people say, for instance, that that it is all a computer simulation, um, that even the thought that it's an evil demon or we're brains and vats or this is all a computer simulation, it really doesn't bother me that much because no. so long as we have sort of sis, like the key is in the systematic deception. So right. if if I can do scientific experiments and, and predict the laws of this simulation and whatever, like fine. I don't even know what it means to say that it's a simulation or not a simulation. Like I, you know, is like, uh, is it just at the heart well, are of we what little bits subs- well is it, we yeah well is, is it the heart well but is it at the heart of if if you had a computer program that with bits perfectly simulated all of the cells in our body and and by very similar uh, uh, mechanisms gave rise to our thoughts I don't know. Like, I, I don't even know that it, it would bother me that much if, if if I was actually hooked up to a to a machine. Like, But it bothers was... you that you might die, right? So what if they're just going to pull the plug? Yeah, but I, but I believe that I'm going to die whether or not I'm in a simulation, right? So, right. yeah, like, that's what I'm saying. Like, if it's that's systematic true. and, like, I have no reason to, to... If there were some sort of implication, like, actually, when I die, I wake up in, like, you know, this horrible, horrible place... Right. Then I would say, okay, like but, but, um, but Our the way in which, <laughs> yeah, I can't, I'm kind of with Descartes beginning point where like, I can't, you know, I, I don't know whether or not this is simulation or not, but more importantly, I don't feel like it, it's that important to live my life, um, knowing whether I'm in a simulation. Well, so that's, I, I don't think you're with Descartes there. Cause he starts out with the assumption that that's crucial for us to know whether because otherwise yeah, yeah no no i'm with him the, in, the, in the step of yeah. doubting no i agree with you i mean look i uh there's two questions there's the question can we know whether or not we're being systematically deceived in one of these ways like the computer right. simulation or and and i think the answer to that is no is that a bad thing that sort of depends on your temperament like like, you know, some people, it really matters to them that they're this flesh and blood thing in a real world and in a real... Other people, are, I think, are more like you, and, and I think I'm like this, too, where whatever. Like, my dog still feels like a dog. My daughter <laughs> exactly. still feels like a daughter. My wife still feels like a wife. Porn and, is still porn. And, and the flesh and blood thing is... is is It doesn't... It's like... You know, if that's all there is, is bits in a, in a computer somewhere and flesh and blood right. isn't what we thought it was, it's still 
for all intents and purposes, it is exactly what I think it is. It right. is that I cut myself and I open and I see blood. Like whether it's strings vibrating in a vacuum or whether it's bits in a computer or whether it's, you know, like it, I don't, the only way that it bothers me is, and this is, I take it is the power of the, the um, experience machine thought experiments is if you think that we could otherwise be living in real reality. Right. There is where you would say, oh shit, like, um, I'm hooked up to a machine and there is this other truer experience that, it, you know, that I could have, um, that is somehow more authentic or has, I don't know, well, I think, wider bright. I think the simulation hypothesis is that there is a truer experience than ours. The people who are running the, the simulation, right? Yeah, but not, I mean, I, I, I think that there is a, you could have a view that like there are just some there is some group of like super intelligent aliens that created video games and we are literally living in their video games like we wouldn't have the ability to live otherwise like they're right you know right it's um, either that or nothing it's like fact right. free ra- it's like free range animals <laughs> just be thankful you're in the video game it turns out the video game is grand theft auto and i might rape you and eat you but <laughs> Just again, this is like super powerful, and I'm sure that plenty of people have gotten tried to get themselves out of it. But I don't, I don't know. Is, there's no is getting there, out of it. There's no getting out of it, right? No, there's not. And in fact, I think the illusion that there is getting out of it, you can draw an arrow from that to the the reign of terror. The, right. You know, like at the end of the right. French Revolution where they thought reason could solve everything and they ended up just chopping a bunch of people's heads off. It just follows. It follows. <laughs> it just follows. <laughs> Logically. It, it entails. Um, <laughs> Even though um, they totally rejected Descartes' dualism, but they accepted that everything could be determined rationally, which I yeah. think, you know, you and the, you know, the Jacobins... Like, well, the, share that. You are the problem was that they weren't in fact being rational, so you can't blame rationality because <laughs> um, they were they were doing something that couldn't be uh, it's just uh, not universalized rational. into a, <laughs> exactly. like a maxim into a universal law. Yeah. So, in one sense, I think this is an interesting form of skepticism. In another sense, though, it doesn't sort of address what Descartes said was motivating his project in the first place, which is something I think we can all relate to, just all the ways in which we're, we are deceived, not systematically, right. but just deceived, like, you know, like all the, like the way that our senses can uh, trick us, the, the like cognitive the thought biases. That, the thought the co- that objects are solid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've just said I didn't want to bring this up because I didn't want to start. But what you said about the computer simulation just p- proves I'm right about the solid about the solids. Yeah. I, I, but I believe that you believe that. Yeah. Well, as long as you know I believe it, then it's okay because there's no truer reality. So, but like what he said was, look, I'm constantly being deceived. Um, and there's all sorts of biases and illu- cognitive illusions that I'm vulnerable to. So I just want to just get rid of all of that. And the, the solution, though, doesn't address those kinds of problems. So, like, we have, you know, we have all the biases that we've talked about, like political biases, motivated right. reasoning, all of that. 
fake news, slanted news, and it's very hard to like situate yourself um, and try to figure out what what you what you what you believe and whether you're justified in believing all of that. And I don't know if his thought experiment. So I think his thought experiment does a good job in saying, look, you really have good grounds to question even some of your most basic beliefs. But then it pretty much stops there in terms yeah, of... Yeah, yeah, it doesn't really do shit about, like, yeah. those kinds of... Yeah. yeah, yeah, because, because like, the truth of the matter is the world is the world and minds are minds, um, whether this is a systematic deception or not. And you can imagine that there would be problems acquiring the rules of the systematic deception just like there are problems acquiring the rules of, of like, non-deceptive, whatever it is. Well, so to be fair, he does kind of have this idea of, like, well, we form clear and when we form a clear and distinct— I mean, it's pretty vague, but a, a clear and distinct idea of something— this is all after yeah i don't know if it helps or not um but like it's not going to deal with the fact that there's fake news and real news and we don't know like how to distinguish between those all the time you know right or or that some people are just dumber and they will be deceived more easily even within the simulation not you Um, but not me this is is others only um there is so again, I think that one of the things that disturbs people about these thought experiments is that they do imagine something like the Matrix, where we're actually like in real reality, like in a in a trapped, and so if only we could get out. But if this, but but if this is the only thing that there is, I don't even know. And maybe people have talked about this, but there it almost makes no sense to try to distinguish a deceiving God versus an honest God, because. If, if there is an omnipotent being who created us and is allowing us to experience the world, there's no way, like the way in which he's making me feel that there is a rock in front of me is by giving me the sensory mechanisms that I have, right? And now if he gave me those same, like that same belief that there was a rock in front of me through like computer software or, you know, it, it, like there's no, it's actually makes, however he does it, it's deceptive. All right, I feel like I should toke up before I yeah, um, but, respond but like, unless, to this. But... Unless the world or the universe exists independent of this God. <laughs> right. It, right. So you can imagine there's a, there's a universe already and a God that just becomes omnipotent. And he's like, I want my creatures to experience this world that was here before me. Right. But everything else is just deception. We all know, he says to his like little friends, like the sort of underling friends, like we all know that two plus two equals five. But no, guess what I'm going to do? They're going to all think that two plus two exactly. equals four. Exactly, right. And that if P then Q, P then Q, then Q follows. Our universe actually holds PN, not P, but I'm going to create this illusion in them. I'm going to make them think that Brady got his ball boy to deflate the balls <laughs> like uh, by like 2%, even though that the ideal gas law, which we also falsely gave them to believe, predicts <laughs> yeah. that they would be deflated exactly by that amount. <laughs> They're like, that's too far. They'll figure it out. They'll, they'll figure that's too far. <laughs> they'll break through the veil. They'll start seeing the numbers of the matrix coming down like rain. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It can't be. No, I, I actually like what you're saying there, which is that like it's actually 
you know, I think that's that's probably right, and maybe even somewhat deep, that <laughs> if there's a deceiving God that's deceiving us even into thinking that there's such a difference between a legitimate God and a deceiving <laughs> God, and all, then maybe he's not deceiving anymore. Or at least our <laughs> under- concept of de- deception is is such right. that it can't capture him. Right. Or her. Or her. Or her. <laughs> He's also tricked us into thinking that monogamy, because of flawed science, and he's given us a flawed science. You know, you know what I think that have we exhausted the evil demon? I think we have, and we're out of the computer simulation, and now it's like fucked. Like I want to go back. You want to just take me back? It's the smell. <laughs> I'm pissed that they like the computer simulation. Like my role in it was like here, work on this book for like three and a half years. I know. And like just struggle with it and struggle with it and live you, in this like small, tiny house. There's a, it would be, wouldn't it be extra shitty if solipsism is actually true and you've just been writing a book for like nobody? <laughs> I mean, most of my books are written for nobody anyway. <laughs> like even if solipsism isn't true, but. <laughs> this is, yeah. this. We're not, are we going to do Pascal now too? I don't know. I don't know. Just a very bad wizard.